Habakkuk will be in chapter 2 where we left off, and yet with the reality of it being so long, we'll just do a quick kind of reminder where we're at in this small book here, but a very powerful book, and boy, I've enjoyed this study. Embracing God in a chaotic world, how appropriate it has been for us even now in the day we live in. I'll try to get one of the ushers, if you don't have an outline, we'll get one of the ushers hopefully who can come and pass out outlines down the middle aisle here in just a moment, and they'll get that for you. I may have to nominate someone. Brother John Yeomans, would you mind grabbing those? They should be there on the side of, if there's not uh, on the side. Yeah, thank you, sir. I appreciate that so much. Appreciate you letting me draft you. Brother John's going to make his way down the middle aisle. If you need an outline, we sure would love for you to follow along, have something to, uh, to see where we're going and so forth. Real quick, uh, the beginning of chapter number one and uh, was where uh, we saw what we described as the silence of God or the perplexity of the prophet. You remember this? He, Habakkuk, uh, struggling with his emotions. He, he's struggling with a focus on self, it, it caused a temporary faltering in him embracing his faith in God. It, it wasn't settled. We saw that. It, it didn't show the necessary resolve. He looked around the nation. He thought things were going terribly wrong. People were doing wrong. God, why are you silent? God, why are you not doing anything? Why are you not judging Israel? And uh, people are living wickedly and seeming to get away with it. And that was his cry uh, there. And, and we talked about his lack of faith. That's why we come to chapter 2 and verse number 4, when God is making the point, the just shall live by faith. Faith in God is in control. And so we made this observation, when heaven is seemingly silent, faith keeps looking upward. It doesn't stop. He's looking to God in, in faith, and that's a strong faith, a biblical faith. God, I'm still trusting you, though I don't see how what you're doing and so forth. And that's where we got into now the rest of chapter 1. We saw what we called the statement by God or the plan of the prophet's God. He gives Habakkuk an assurance. You remember that assurance? And it is a great assurance for you and I in every day that he's completely aware. He is uh, completely cognizant of all that is transpiring here on earth. And, and sometimes it's hard for us to wrap our minds around. We, we see Brother Hill there in Ireland. We see other missionaries in China, uh, halfway around the globe, wherever it may be. Aren't you thankful that God is aware of what is happening in every single Christian's life this moment? Every single one. Your life, my life, and then every Christian believer, every person around the world, he is cognizant. He reminds Habakkuk of that. And secondly, he, he reminded him what? That he's working behind the scenes. I love that thought because so often, boy, in our singular limited vision, we don't see him working. And we, then we begin to question, what are you doing? Why, why isn't something happening? So faith helps us to trust that he's working behind the scenes. And then, uh, and often beyond our knowledge or our sight, and then he told Habakkuk this. You remember in his response, I'm about to unleash something that's going to astonish you. And uh, we, we saw as he's expressed the, uh, the use of the Babylonians to descend upon Israel and be the means of um, judgment. So uh, then we saw this. We kind of derived this from that passage. Settle faith tells us God answers is always the best answer, even though our hearts might think otherwise. And, and uh, I, I would just say, boy, sometimes our, our emotions, sometimes our own thoughts and opinions, boy, they can steer us wrong. And we have to get back to the fact that God's answer is always best. 
It's not what I think is best. It's not how I think it should always work out or whatever. No, God's way is best. His way is perfect, as the Scripture says. And so, yet, God then responds, and we see in verses 11 and 17 through 17 of chapter 1. You remember, he struggled with that response. Why in the world are you using them? Wait a minute, they're more wicked. They're worse than the Israelites in his mind. Why are you going to go to such extremes now, Habakkuk is saying. And we talked about uh, how he perceived the incompatibility of using the Babylonians with the character of God and what he thought was the right way to spawn that. In that, we, we came to that conclusion. What God is teaching Habakkuk and would remind you and I of every day is this. The just must live by a faith that is fully yielded and surrendered to God, his will, his way, no matter the doubt spurred by our view. And so it's surrendered. It's a submissive faith that says, God, I'm surrendered your way and your will, what you're doing. Um, and so I'm surrendered to that. So therefore, we pe- press forward in chapter 2. As, as verses 11 through 17, he, he comes back to God and says, ah, that doesn't make sense. How's that? How, how do I rectify that with what I know of your character? How could you use such an evil, wicked nation and, and so forth? And so we come back to the beginning of chapter 2, and we saw the, what we would describe as the sovereignty of God or the prophecy of God. And in these verses, uh, here's what we learn. First of all, the, the woe to the prophet and all that would question God's ways. We, we saw that God reminded us that his calendar is much bigger than ours. And uh, though the answers to prayer, the fulfillment of promises seem delayed to us, it will happen. I, I love this statement. I, it is one that I sometimes have to continually remind myself of. Well, understand, delay is only in the heart of man. The details of God's plan always occur according to his perfect timing. See, we delay, as we said, is a human concoction. God doesn't delay. There is no delay with God. Oh, there's mercy and there's long-suffering, and yet God's timing is always perfect. Perfect. And I think of the times when Jesus Christ walked this earth. I think of Mary and Martha. You remember what what they said to Jesus Christ? If you'd only been here earlier. If you'd only been here earlier, Lazarus wouldn't be dead. And yet God's timing was what? perfect because Lazarus walked again he was raised to newness of life and so we see that God's timing is perfect we're reminded of that there's no delay with God only perfect timing so we said our response to that is our needed daily reminder God has a purpose I need to show patience and all will soon be perfect it's his reminder and he says that here in the beginning of chapter two and so forth and this woe hang on that whoa just hang on Habakkuk I'm still in control I'm still on the throne everything's gonna work out all things work together for good to them that love God who are they're called according to his purpose just hang on whoa that woe then we came to the other woes right and this is the rest where we left off in the middle of it okay uh, the woe to the perpetrators we called it letter B and he's talking to those who would do likewise like the Babylonians God says I have it underhand they're not getting away with anything i've caught it i I, i've I've seen it i'm going to take care of it in verse four we see the first woe it's not as mentioned but it certainly is implied here and that was let me go back i jumped ahead myself that is the woe to the proud woe to the proud we made the statement that the, the proud person is not upright of heart, that his pride is not right. In other words, we like to term it this way in common vernacular. The last man standing is not the right person necessarily. <laughs> okay, The time was coming where the Babylonians were going to be the last people standing in a sense. and They were going to conquer all or most, if not all, the nations. They would be the last nation. Does that mean they're the most upright, the most righteous? No, not at all. And that's God's point. That's, uh, that, that's not uh, validating the Babylonians 
significance and how they acted and so forth. See, uh, we, we saw the clear contrast, if we could put it this way, that this verse presents. It's better to be the one that lives humbly by faith in the God who controls the calendar than to live in prideful confidence in the one who controls nothing. <laughs> you and I control nothing. And yet sometimes in our pride, we, we, we have confidence in ourselves. We trust in ourselves. Well, I can make it work. I can fix it. I can do this. And I can handle it. No, we can. We ought to live by faith in God alone. He's got it in his hands. He's, his counter is much greater than us. And number two, real quick, we're kind of trying to hurry go through this, but it is helping us to get up to speed. Woe to the one who gives into pride-induced self-ambition. And we saw this in the uh, verses five through eight. It's a great list of sins that they committed, the Babylonians, and described their desire for more power, land, uh, conquering was insatiable. And uh, they would do whatever it takes to fulfill that appetite. And we said that it's never satisfied. Such a pride-induced ambition is never satisfied in, as he describes it here, like uh, hell and, and death. They cannot be satisfied. Neither the Babylonians would be satisfied in their ambition to get more and gain more. Likewise, they would stop at nothing to acquire wealth and, and build their kingdom. And so, on your outline, made a mistake on this statement, so uh, you can fill it in correctly. Okay? We said that everything has a planting season. There is, uh, it's everything that has a plant. There is a reaping season. I accidentally put harvest in that blank. That's supposed to go two blanks later. Okay? And so, uh, the next statement is, man, uh, no man knows the length of the season, but we can trust the God of the harvest. Okay? And, and that's going back to that mindset of God's calendar. Listen, you and I don't know how long our life is. We don't know how long the wicked will prosper sometimes. We don't know how long that we're going to have to suffer. Or be pre- we don't know how long that the, uh, the, the wicked will go without judgment in the moment. We don't know any of those things. No man knoweth the length of the season. And remember, we say this. The Bible says that that sin is pleasurable for a season okay i don't know i can't tell you if someone, oh you're in sin how long you have till judgment falls but this one thing i do know judgment will come punishment will come and so you ought not to flirt with thinking you know the length of the season because before you know it the season can be up reaping always comes with planting that's the principle that god is saying no man knows the length of the season but you can trust the god of the harvest uh, and he would go on to share with us through this passage, the one who plundered without mercy, who conquered with little regard for anyone or anything, uh, and who, who took to quench his own insatiable appetite and desire would soon be plundered, conquered, and spoiled, even by the very people that they conquered and spoiled. And so it plays out in these verses. Verse 7, shall they not rise up suddenly? They shall bite thee and away, shall vex thee. And boy, the very people, uh, God would use them to come back, in a sense, on uh, the Babylonians and so forth. Verse 7, speaking about it being suddenly and such. And so their uncontrolled, sin-laden ambition that springs from great pride would be their literal undoing. We know it was fulfilled. The Medes and Persians came along and destroyed them and laid waste to them and basically uh, subdued them, conquered the Babylonians. Then we came to verse number 9. Let's look there again, if you will, and uh, get right back in it. Here's where we left off. Verse number 9, the next woe. Woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness to his house house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. Thou hast consulted shame to thy house by cutting off many people, and hast sinned against thy soul. For the stone shall cry out of the wall, and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. So we came to number three, the last woe, and we describe this as woe to the one who gives in to pride-induced, unbridled covetousness. 
Okay? This desire, uh, they saw, they desired, and then they took. And we made this statement. Instead of the wealth, the, the security, the self-exaltation they desired, what did they gain? The pastors made it shame. They heaped unto themselves, not wealth and power and land, but they heaped unto themselves shame. Uh, they also gained a long list of sins against their own soul. They even gained creation in that last verse, speaking about the beams and the stones crying out to their shame and calling out their guilt as a nation. We'll see this. I hope we'll get there tonight. But you know what the Babylonians desired? They desired to be the greatest nation. They desired for the nations to speak of the glory of Babylon. They, they wanted to be the nation. and uh, uh, the one. They wanted everybody to, to shout their glory. And the reality is, boy, it's, it's going to be turned upside down. Uh, the very earth is going to scream of their guilt and their shame, as Habakkuk describes in this passage here. You know, we made this statement real quick. To procure safety and security while exalting themselves, they took lands and possessions that did not belong to them. They killed those who did not threaten them, and they sought to be untouchable while selling short the reach of God's judging hand. They thought, who's going to judge us? Who's going to take care? Who's going to combat us? Who's going to uh, fight against us? And so the very thing that would drive their armies across the known world would be the very thing that condemns them and leads them to destruction, okay? That covetousness, that desire for more and heed themselves. Now we come to verse number 12, right? Notice it, if you will, verse number 12 and 13, the new material, new territory. Here we go. He says this, woe to him that buildeth a town with blood and establisheth a city by iniquity. And that last part's really a theme of these last few woes, the wickedness of uh, the Babylonians. So number four, woe to the one who gives into pride-induced success at all cost living. Okay, understand, here, here, here is the description from Habakkuk. They, they kind of threw caution to the wind, and they didn't care what it took and what it cost. We, we just want to be successful. And the wording of verse 12 really goes to, uh, straight to the point. They would build cities and towns, enlarge the cold kingdom through what? Sacrificing others and sinning often. They didn't care. Whatever it would take to get what they want, they would do it. They would commit it. Sin, uh, just uh, cruelty, you name it. Their lust for success in the enlarging of their own kingdom blinded them to the point. Now get this, because this is human nature, isn't it? It blinded them to the point they didn't care who they hurt and what sins they committed. Who cares? We don't care. We just want success. We want to conquer lands. We want wealth and power. We want to heap it unto ourselves. We don't care who we hurt and what sins. And in their wake, Habakkuk describes that there would be pools of innocent blood left behind. There would be an aftermath of great sin. Uh, throughout the scriptures, you can see that the uh, Babylonians, you think of Jonah as his reluctancy to go to the Nineveh and preach. They're, listen, they have a history throughout scripture of being a barbaric, ruthless, almost evil regime uh, due to its treatment of those who they conquered. In modern day, you and I can think back, and certainly not during my lifetime, but right before, and as we have opportunity to study, and I, I'm grateful that in, in your lifetime, many of you, maybe certainly generations before, that when World War II came along, and, and when experiences with Hitler and things, there was video cameras, and there was videos that could, you and I can see today, and boy, the atrocities of such a wicked man 
performed upon Jews and others and, and such as they rolled across Europe and threatened even Great Britain and, and such and so forth. And we think of those atrocities, and very much in that day, Babylon was like, uh, uh, the Babylonians were dis, uh, described as that. I find it interesting. I, I love archaeology and what it reveals, because what's neat about this is whenever I hear of an archaeological find, one thing I know, it will always prove the Scripture. It will, and so that's why I get excited about it. When I get an archaeological magazine in or I find an article, and I found one. Uh, This is from a a paper in the UK, uh, the Express, and they were talking about how specifically dealing with uh, the Babylonians and others that, here, go figure, the archaeological finds of recent days have proven that the Bible was right about these armies. Notice what it says. It says this, and according to Tom Meyer, a professor in Bible studies at Shasta Bible College and graduate school in California, there is ample archaeological evidence to prove Scripture right. Amen. He told the Express, quote, horrific archaeological evidence has come to light that validates the Bible's claim of the violent nature of ancient Near Eastern armies. For example, he goes on, The 7th century B.C. Israelite prophet Habakkuk depicts the Babylonian army under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar as ruthless and notorious for cruelty. Both written and visual records from the ancient Near East can demonstrate that the biblical prophets were not exaggerating about the grisly nature of their enemies. For instance, the article goes on, Professor Meyer pointed out wall inscriptions discovered at the palace of the Assyrian king Ashurnasirpal II. The inscription speaks of the cruel king, get this, flaying nobles who had rebelled against him while draping their skins over pile of corpses. A 2015 study published in the International Journal of Osteoarchaeology analyzed an adult male skeleton dated to the second half of the ancient uh, of the eighth, excuse me, eighth century BC, most likely a victim of the Assyrian army. The study's authors wrote, quote, Among the people of the ancient Middle East, the Assyrians were noted for their cruelty, which has been hypothesized to be designed, now get this, which has been hypothesized to be designed as psychological warfare. Reliefs, he goes on being quoted, reliefs found in Assyrian palaces provide vivid images and textual descriptions of this brutality, including the dismembering, skinning, decapitating, impaling, and burning of their victims. Another wall text linked to the Neo-Assyrian king Sennacherib exposes similar practices, including the dismembering of gender body parts. Professor Meyer said, Reliefs from Sennacherib's palace portray the Assyrian soldiers dismembering men from the biblical city of Lachish by peeling off their skin, decapitating their heads, and cutting off their hands. Other wall reliefs from his successor show prisoners from Elam being flayed and having their tongues cut out along with piles of severed heads. Now that sounds gross, I get it. But can I tell you, as they find things and inscriptions on walls and pictures, it backs up everything the scriptures say. It shows it. They're finding it. I love it. And did you catch that? I mean, Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. Do you realize that in my lifetime, we have come face to face, we've been confronted with psychological warfare, probably like nothing else. Certainly it was around in the war wars. It was there. You can study it. But reality is when we have terrorists come along and they try to behead or they do behead people on television, they're playing psychological warfare. 
When they're blowing up people and killing men and women and babies and children. and uh, It's psychological war. And that's what the Babylonians certainly partook in. And so that's what's described here. And so we're kind of getting the context. And Habakkuk says, listen, we've heard rumors. These are not the kind of people that God should be using for judgment in his mind. And God's saying, listen, I know exactly what they are like. I, I, I know it. In fact, I love the statement here too. Literally, their famed city of Babylon in all its glory was going to be built on the backs of slaves and prisoners for many different nations. The ones they didn't kill and dismember and behead, they took back to their land, as we read of Daniel and Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, and those were, many of those were the laborers that built that great city in their mind. For a time, in the minds of the Babylonians, don't miss this, relative pragmatism seemed that it was working. In other words, it proved correct. You say, what, is, what do they mean? Well, in their minds, whatever is needed to achieve success in, is right and good, no matter who it hurts or how wrong it might seem to be. They felt justified in everything they did. The actions we just read about in their pursuit of success at all costs. But that's where verse 13 comes in. Look at verse 13 again. Notice it. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor in the very fire and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity? Man, I love that statement. Uh, Whoa, whoa, is it not God who's in control? And God's saying this, am I not in control? Is Jehovah not in control? Uh, They may labor and where all their efforts will be vanity and empty. I like to think of it this way. Before the paint is dry and the, uh, the structure is settled or has settled, the all-consuming fire of judgment of God would lay them low. Before everything they had dreamed of would come to fruition. We've got success. We're about to conquer the last nation and God's going to wipe it all the way with but one word, one description. They would weary themselves by pursuing success, as I like to describe so very often, that's like cotton candy. Just as you begin to taste it, it's gone forever. It disappears. And what he describes in this verse, I think, is very astute. He said their sin would weary them. They'd be worn out by their very sin. God's going to be up in heaven and say, this is futile. This is futile. And I just think of it in terms of in the future. Yeah, I sure am thankful that we've read the last chapter. We know what's going to happen. And, and as we think of you and I enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb, we'll be in heaven as the tribulation unfolds here on earth. And there will be people like the Antichrist and others who think that they are, they're winning. They, they think that all they're doing is working here on earth. Man, I sure am thankful that all that they will be doing will be in vain. They're going to weary themselves out. And then Christ will return and defeat all. That's very much what is described here with the Babylonians. And that's really, if their sin wore them out, would weary them out, that's really what sin does, doesn't it? We are fond of the statement that sin will take you farther than you want to go. It keeps you longer than you want to stay. And it certainly costs you more than you ever want to pay. That's what sin does. And so it has for the Babylonians, and it will. I, I like to think that sin always promises two things. You say, what does sin always promise? Payday is coming. Payday is coming, number one. It will always catch up with you. Be sure your sin will find you out. Number two, not only is payday coming, but the payout is going to be ugly. You reap what you sow. Payout's going to be ugly. 
It's going to prove this is not worth it. Why did I even think I could do this? Why, why did I go down this path? Why did I do it? Much like the remorse of the prodigal son in the pigsty, the, the payday, or the payout, excuse me, is ugly, but payday's coming. Its aftermath is always miserable because it's the God of heaven that faithfully ensures that sin is rightly recompensed. The punishment matches. That's what God in heaven does. The Babylonians, we would put it in our own kind of terminology, they would sleep in a bed of their own making and it would not be pretty. If you subscribe to the, uh, what they did, the success at all costs, you'll find that that cost is much greater than you could ever imagine. Any success will be short-lived. It won't last long. Woe to those who do. That's what he says here. Mark it down. God in heaven told Habakkuk that the Babylonians would find that principle be to be true. And so here, here's a statement. I think this is so good. This not only applies to this principle, this law, if we could put it this way, and to what God was telling Habakkuk would happen to the Babylonians, but it applies to every law and principle of Scripture, okay? It's simply this. It's always better to learn the principle and law than to test it. There's one thing we ought to teach our children early on, that it is so much better to learn the principle in the law than to test it. You know, there a long time ago, I sure was thankful that I learned about the law of gravity, that I didn't have to test it by jumping off a cliff. Aren't you thankful for that? Yeah, you learned it, right? Yeah, you said, hey, yeah, wow, a science book and so forth. And certainly you may have observed it before, but reality is it's so much better to learn the law than to test it. Now, can I tell you, it's so much better, so much better to learn the law that be sure your sin will find you out than to test it. It's so much better to learn than many of these principles laid out for us, like the Babylonians. Boy, don't go down that path. Don't go down that road of having to learn for yourself. I'm going to test it. Is that really true? I'm not sure if that's that's really going to play out. Man, my friend, it is so much better, especially when it comes to the principles of God's word, the laws of God. Don't test it, learn it. Learn it. Commit it to memory and follow it, and much better way to live. As I said before, this plays into it. We'll get to verse 14 in a second. Don't look down yet. Okay, we'll get there, I promise. You know what I said the Babylonians want to be? They really want to be the greatest of all time, the goat. Okay, common terminology. And uh, the goat, the greatest of all time when it came to nations. They wanted everybody to sing their praises. They wanted from Israel to, uh, to every other nation, the Philistines, you name it. They wanted them to remember who the Babylonians were. And so that was their desire that they would gain the glory, that they would be the goat, the greatest of all time when it came to nations and so forth. They wanted the earth to be filled with their glory. Now listen to me. The earth will never be filled with anyone's glory but one person. And that's exactly what God tells Habakkuk. Look at verse 14 now. You can look now. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's a safe statement to say that the waters cover the sea. Amen. And as that comparison, the knowledge of the glory of God is going to cover the earth. You will start to notice in chapter 3, and we'll get there, there is a looking ahead to the end times where Jesus Christ is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and he will reign over the entire world in the earth. And this is one of these verses that God just kind of tells Habakkuk, don't worry. Just like the Babylonians wished the earth was filled with their glory, that's not going to happen, but there will come a time when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he alone is worthy of glory. Take heart, Habakkuk. 
And so I say to you, my friend, as much as America has forgotten God, as much as God has been rebelled against, fists have shaken at him in this nation around the world, take heart, the day is coming where our king, our Lord, will reign supreme. And everybody will know it. So take heart. Take heart. He's encouraging Habakkuk and you and I all at the same time. Let's get back real quick to this pronouncement of woes, of judgment. And now we're going to see the level of debauchery that the Babylonians fall. Look at verse number 15. Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that puttest thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. Thou art filled with shame for glory. Drink thou also, and let thy foreskin be uncovered. And the cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned unto thee, and shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. For the violence of Lebanon shall cover thee, and the spoil of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood, and for the, the violence of the land and of the city and of all that dwell therein. You see, it's not a, it, it, it's, it's not a big jump for us to make uh, from this drunken debauchery that was called a great feast. You remember Daniel chapter 5? In Daniel chapter 5, the, a great feast is described, and, and the Babylonians, there they're enjoying life. It is a drunken debauchery in, in Daniel 5, and it really pictures for us well uh, the Babylonians because they were, a, they, they were given, and you see it here on our outline. Let's move ahead. Sorry. Woe to the one who gives in to unbridled wickedness. I apologize. I'm behind in the blanks. Um, woe to the one who gives in to unbridled wickedness. Okay? What were they given to? They were given to strong drink. Even historically, there are some uh, historians who call it a drunk nation. They were literally wholly given to alcohol and wine and, and boy, just, just flowing with it, if you could describe it. And in Daniel chapter 5, it's a great picture of that being the case. We'll, we'll reference it more even this evening. Um, but it, it was a, a major evil in the nation. And what is one of the reasons the Bible speaks against strong drink and alcohol? Because the controlling factor and means that strong drink can be. It leads one or leads people to what? To lose inhibitions that open the door to more wickedness. And that did so in Babylon. It, it was obvious. And what is described in these verses is rather graphic, frankly. And the door that it opened up, he's saying, let's just be reminded, what are inhibitions? They are self-consciousness of one's action that leads to proper restraint. God has given us, I believe, some natural inhibitions, and then we learn more from understanding what is holiness, what does God want? So we have some natural inhibitions, some self-consciousness. Now, wait a second, that act, that uh, action, wait a minute, I, I don't want to do that. And so it helps restrain us from doing something that is not pleasing to God, that is not right. But boy, doesn't alcohol remove inhibitions? Doesn't just steal that away and people do things? And, and so I've heard people say to me, hey, man, I, I did this while I was drunk. I would have never, ever done that any other time. It removed inhibitions. It, it took back that self-restraint. And so we see it play out in Babylon because these, bad, these, these verses, this passage describes what? Well, look at it. Sensual behavior, fornication, adultery, promiscuity. Some even commentators believe it describes homosexuality and things that transpired there in the nation. They were freely exhibited, displayed, and as it talks about nakedness and foreskin, I mean, it is describing some great debauchery uh, of wickedness that was transpiring in this nation. And God's saying, listen, Habakkuk, I know what's going on. I will judge them for their sins. 
goes on and and may I just step back, boy, you see what has aided to the decline of America? My friends, alcohol has aided to the decline of America. It removes inhibitions. It, it takes, why, why is sex and everything else so big and, and uh, promiscuity and so forth? Man, my friend, alcohol, drugs, they remove inhibitions. They go hand in hand. It did in Babylon. And it's just a reality of it kind of opens the door for many different things. There's also something to be said that this passage has kind of a parallel uh, meaning an inference or an implication, if we could put it that way. Notice in verses 15 and 16, just glance there for a moment. Notice the statements about the cup. Notice also about the, the references to uh, drinking from that cup and so forth, okay? There's some definite references here. And, and now look at this verse up here. This is from Jeremiah chapter 51 in verse 7. Jeremiah wrote this. Babylon hath been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that hath made all the earth drunken. The nations have drunken of her wine. Therefore, the nations are mad. Okay, so even from this passage, then verses 15 and 16, it's, it, God is saying, you've put the bottle in front of them. So literally what we see is a, a second meaning too. Not only is uh, alcoholism, strong drink, ruining the nation, running rampant, but he's also describing politically the nation of uh, the Babylonians were, um, in a sense, offering their drink to the surrounding nations. What do we mean by that? Well, would we not say that Babylon was drunk, as we've already seen, with self-ambition and lust and desire for power, that covetousness uh, of greediness and so forth? And so they were getting other nations to drink of that. So with promises of power, with promises of political alliances and treaties, with power of, listen, when we subdue that nation, you can have a part, you can have profit. And so they kind of passed their cup around. They had other nations drink with them to get drunk with lust and desire for an expanding kingdom, the profit, the power that came from it. But yet you realize what the verse says in verse 15 even? They did so to uncover their nakedness. Literally, they would be deceptive, deceitful. In their guile, they would say, oh, yeah, we have a pact, we have, a, we, we have agreement, and, and uh, we have an alliance, and everything's going to be perfect. So that nation would kind of be off their guard, and then the Babylonians would invade them and conquer them. It would lay bare their nakedness. And so we kind of see this dual picture here of, wow, they were really cruel. They were a nation that success at all costs, as we've seen this. So not only is God describing the wickedness taking place among the population and the nation, but it also speaks of the sly and wicked ways of the conquering nation. Now, did you catch this? I love this verse because it says, listen, God used them as the golden cup in his hand. And really, in his right hand, and I love the reference in verse 16, the Lord's right hand, the, that hand of judgment. And they were, they were a cup of judgment being poured out from his right hand upon Israel and other nations that rejected God. But, verse 16 points out, that God's right hand of judgment would be turned upon them. They themselves would now drink of God's cup of judgment, and the result would not be pretty. I love what Jeremiah prophesied around this. The verse right before, verse 6, he says this, Flee out of the midst of Babylon, deliver every man his soul, be not cut off in her iniquity, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He will render unto her a recompense, and a just recompense it would be. He's going he's gonna to descend in judgment upon them. That's what they're saying. And Jeremiah is saying, prophesying, understanding the same truth that Habakkuk is being told here. 
And then the statement in verse 8 is very ominous. The first few words just simply say this. Babylon is suddenly fallen and destroyed. Now listen, what did verse 7 prophesy? A sudden destruction. Suddenly fallen, destroyed. The last part of verse 16 is graphic. It is, it is a, a gross picture. Uh, and notice what it says, literally, verse 16. And shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. What does that mean? Well, literally, he says this, their glory would be reduced to nothing more than shameful spewing. What do we, what do we, what's he speaking of here? Well, let's take it in context. He's talking about drunkenness. He's talking about that they have given it a strong drink. It's opened the door to other wickedness and so forth. And, and think of a drunk who wakes up in the morning covered in his own vomit. He's literally spewed upon himself. He's vomited upon himself. And he reeks and he, in the stench. And that's his glory. There's, their glory is their greatest shame. Literally, the nation of Babylon will wake up in their own spewing, their own vomit. It's a vivid picture. I remember the first time that I ever came across a drunk. Uh, and they had vomit, had thrown up. And grotesque, disgusting, shameful. And literally the picture that God gives Habakkuk. Again, this is God telling Habakkuk, woe unto them. Why? Well, verse 15, woe unto him that give the neighbor drink. The drunkenness that's transpiring here. Their spewing shall be thy glory. Now, verse 17 is an interesting verse. It kind of adds fuel to the fire of judgment. It, it would seem to make a particular note against their invasions of that of Lebanon. And you see it mentioned there in verse number 17. And uh, what was Lebanon known for? Well, the great forest, their great woods, if we could describe it. That was even spoken of in the building of the temple and so forth. And so they were known for that. And certainly because of that, animals living in there. And, and uh, it would seem that there was a special layer of cruelty to their invasion and uh, they violently went in they abused both the trees and the animals and probably just cutting down trees for the fun of it and so forth taking advantage of it to build things and just laying waste to it and the picture seems to be so much so that the animals were afraid of them and it wasn't limited to the forest and the animals but it spread to the city and it affected all that lived in therein and I think what God is telling uh, Habakkuk is he, Lebanon being part of Israel God's saying, listen, Habakkuk, I know exactly what happened. Lebanon may be small. Lebanon may be off everybody's radar. But I, God, I know about it. I know exactly what they did there. And I know what they did to the trees and the animals and anything. It's kind of interesting. You look back and God even gave the Israelites instruction about when they went on war, how to handle the land and things like that. It's kind of interesting. God is cognizant of those things. And he says, listen, Habakkuk, I, I know what they even did to the trees and the animals and what they did to the cities and those that lived therein. Their unbridled wickedness was calling for swift and complete judgment that would flow from the hand of God. God said, Habakkuk, I've got it all under control. There's one last woe, and we'll have to wait till next week to get to it. And it kind of really sums it up in a sense. It's very simple. We won't spend a whole lot of time in it next week. Then we'll get into chapter 3 and see a great promise that, we'll, that God has made. But he'll add one last thing to the list of indictments. Here's one last thing, and to me it's probably the greatest. It kind of sums up all of them, but we'll get into that next week. Hang on to that outline, or we'll give you a new one next week. But if you bring those prayer requests, I would like to make draw a special attention to one. 
at least one, and uh, others too. But Brother Cliff, you'll bring me those. I, I would ask you to pray for uh, the Stevens relative, uh, Dwayne Bills. He's been in our um, uh, prayer bulletin here. We've been praying for him in our Sunday school class and things too. His daughter was missing, if you remember, for many weeks now, and they did find her deceased. And so just pray for the family uh, and for wisdom to find out what happened for the authorities and so forth. So you see Dwayne Bills in our um, prayer bulletin there concerning his daughter. Well, after we printed it, after Miss Trisha printed it, we got the update. And so just pray for the family, would you? Dwayne Bill's family, they did find uh, his daughter deceased. And so now the investigation and things going into it. So pray for that. Pray for comfort for the family. Uh, in, in a sense of a praise, though, we are thankful that they have found some closure and come to some uh, finding her in that sense. So just pray for the family, if you would, there too. Okay. Let me mention some others here. Ask you to pray for Cadron Roth. Cadron Roth and... Uh, uh, this is the grandson of Pam Running, and he has ner- knee surgery on Friday, a torn ACL. So pray for Cadron Roth. Cadron Roth, this is the grandson of the Runnings, and that knee surgery coming up on Friday. Knee surgery coming up on Friday. Pray that everything go well, a torn ACL, and things there, if you will. Ask you to pray for Walling Blasius, and uh, she's in our thing there. So she's having a heart cath, had her test last Thursday, and so now having a heart cath on Monday at 10 o'clock. That heart is in AFib, and so they're going to go in there. And so just pray for wisdom for the doctors, for Miss Walling, and that procedure on Monday at 10 o'clock. Pray that all would go well there, if you will. And uh, just um, saw Lori's note here. Do pray for Dwayne Bill's family, too. They're unsaved. And so I want to pray for salvation and the Lord to work that way, too. So going back to that first mention, Dwayne Bill's and the family, pray for the unsaved members of that family, too. Um, ask you to pray for uh, Ryan and Ruth Yule, and uh, they're on vacation. So pray for safety and driving. The Lord will watch over them and protect them. Ryan and Ruth on vacation there. Ask you to pray for Gary Boudreau uh, in our prayer list, too, a friend of Jerry Judd. He broke his nose and hurt his arm and cut his leg. So just pray for healing there uh, for Gary Boudreau and a friend of Jerry Judd and broke his nose, hurt his, uh, hurt his arm and has a cut on his leg. So just pray for healing for Gary Boudreau, if you would, please. And then, and uh, ask you to pray for Sophia May. Sophia May, this is the Judd's great-grandbaby in Hurley uh, Nick unit, has RSV and one month old. So pray for Sophia May. Sophia May. Great grandbaby in Hurley Nick unit and has RSV. So just pray for healing, certainly. Comfort for the family there, too. And just Lord would work there for Sophia May. Then ask you to pray for Don uh, Van Bergen. This is Andy Van Bergen's uncle. He has terminal cancer. Says he's saved, but Andy is not 100% sure. So just pray for the family. Assurance of salvation for Don Van Bergen. And certainly comfort for the family as that is terminal cancer. The Lord would just undertake on his behalf there. All right, I think that's it. And so you and I will split up in groups one, two, and three, and we'll spend some time in prayer. Appreciate being here tonight. Looking forward to Sunday, being back in the Lord's house, and uh, encourage you to go to prayer for these. And then when you're done, just quietly slip out. All right, God bless you. Let's go to prayer.